What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 63 of the 2QB Experience. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. You can find me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. You can find all my stuff at 2QBs.com. And on the line, his second appearance on the show, Mr. Ben Gretsch at Yards Per Gretsch of Rotoviz Fantasy Labs Draft Day Consultants. Ben, welcome back, man. It's good to have you again. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, definitely excited to get back on and chat with you. I had a good time uh, back in August. Yep, and we're, we're, of course, doing different stuff at this time of the year. We're, we're in the thick of the fantasy season itself, kind of season winding down, getting ready for the fantasy playoffs. And I just want to dive in uh, to our Week 11 recap here, and we'll start with quarterback-centric news, as we usually do. Uh, the first thing I want to get to is this situation in Buffalo. Uh, we saw Nathan Peterman melt down against the Chargers, uh, something that we kind of see coming if you looked at you know how bad the Bills' offensive line had been playing uh, compared to how well the Chargers' defensive line had been playing. Um, you know, just creating a, a lot of pressure for Peterman. He made a ton of mistakes. Tyrod Taylor came in off the bench in the second quarter, scored about 18 fantasy points in relief. How can we advise people on how to, you know, either hold him or drop him for fantasy if we don't know if he, you know, is going to keep that role or not? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky situation. I, I definitely think he's worth holding right now because I think he's definitely a valuable fantasy asset when he's playing, but I do have some concerns about it, about whether they're going to go back to him. I think it's pretty clear to, I mean, it was clear before the game to anyone, uh, any outside observer that, that Tyrod Taylor should still be the starting quarterback, but obviously Sean McDermott made the decision he did. And at this point, uh, I mean, I almost think, like, what does he have to lose? Like, what does he have to lose from deciding to go back to Nathan Peterman? I mean, everyone's just going to tell him he's an idiot again, which everyone already is. But he actually has a chance, if he goes back to Nathan Peterman, for Peterman to, to play well enough that he can justify the decision in the first place. So I almost think because he basically already has his chips in the in the center that he's just going to you know double down on this now. And, and I'm pretty concerned about it. I mean, the, the comments after the game that, you know, he's going to review the tape and all that. So, I mean, it's not even close. Like, you no. don't need to review the tape, you know? So, it's it's concerning for me. I mean, I, I still think Tyrod's very holdable. And even if uh, Peterman starts it again this week, I think I would probably hang on to Taylor at least for one more week and just see if Peterman makes it through a game and, and how well he does and, and what kind of the, the coach pick is next week. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear that McDermott and the Bills wanted – Tyrod out of there in favor of Peterman for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, outright tanking or just the fact that they knew they're not going to win the Super Bowl. They wanted to start to get a look at, at the rookie. Like, I get it. You know, it, it makes sense. But I'm with you. If, if he has another terrible game like that, the fans will go nuts, I would imagine, in Buffalo if they don't go back to Tyrod. So even if he does not start this week, Taylor, that is, uh, there's a good chance he could be starting the following week. And the Bills' schedule is okay down the stretch. I think he's a hold in two quarterback leagues. But in terms of how you value him relative to the rest of your guys, like that's just really tricky. I mean, I feel like if you are really scraping the bottom of the barrel for starting quarterbacks, which is the case for a lot of rosters this year based upon all the injuries we've seen at the quarterback position, Tyrod's a guy who might be better than anyone you already have. And if that's the case, it's worth taking that gamble on him, at least for one more week, seeing how that plays out. Just keep an eye on it. You got, there's no real, we don't really have any answers at this point, but uh, like Ben said, there, there's value here one way or the other. And uh, we just got to see how it plays out. Jameis Winston, it's been announced. He's going to be out another week or two. Is he droppable to you at this point, Ben? 
I mean, that's close. The, I, I, I probably not, but I'm not real high on James Winston. I, I really haven't been since he came out, mostly just due to accuracy issues and, and things like that. But you know, I'm not a, I'm not a QB scout, but you can see some of the stuff on tape where he makes some kind of some boneheaded decisions, and then there's some some off the field stuff where he's made some boneheaded decisions and and been in, involved in some you know some controversial stuff. And for me, I mean, just like some of the decisions he made. You know, I go back to the cap when he got up in the cafeteria and yelled something out in, in college, right after he was, you know, going through a, a legal process and and had accusations against him, and it's it just like the, the types of decisions like that that are, I don't know how much that necessarily always translates to the to the football field, but it, it makes you think like, man, like, it, can he process the information well enough? And uh, you know, we just keep seeing some of these things. You know, we we heard another report about this the the, the Uber driver thing. There was the uh, the pregame speech the other week where you know it was just <laughs> kind of a bizarre thing. A little weird. Where even his yeah. teammates were like, "What's going on, dude?" <laughs> like, uh, it, it's uh, it's, man. I mean, it, it's starting to it's starting to get dire. I mean, if you're like a dynasty owner, I, I'm starting to get, like get concerned that you know he's uh, not going to be the long term stud that obviously everyone you know who is a Tampa Bay fan or, or a dynasty owner hoped for when you know he came in with. The, the type of draft capital and, and status that he came in with. But uh, as far as for just this season, I mean, he's going to be out a couple more weeks. Fitzpatrick's playing all right. We don't know what's going to happen with the, the legal stuff, or that's probably going to take until at least next year. But more information comes out or something, you could see situations where, you know, the team is forced into some type of discipline. I mean, that's probably not going to happen, but it's just a, a weird situation where there's enough factors with off the field stuff and injury and he hasn't really even been that good. I mean, I'd, I'd be fine dropping him if, if you if you're okay at QB and you don't need to uh, hold on for the potential upside in the playoffs. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he's a must hold. I, I totally agree, and I think the context that you wrap that in is perfect. It, it really depends on how set you are at the quarterback position, aside from Winston. Like if you have. If you're in a 2QB league and you're carrying four quarterbacks on your roster already, and especially if two of those guys are really solid, like, um, I don't know, say like if you had Carson Wentz and Matthew Stafford, uh, two guys who you very realistically could have drafted as QBs 1 and 2 on your team, or or 2 and 3 to go with Winston, I think if you're that well set up, you can afford to cut a guy like Winston loose because there are all these question marks. And for me, the the legal stuff isn't as much of a concern. I'm concerned primarily about the health. Uh, and it's kind of the opposite of that situation with Tyrod Taylor, where the Bucks at some point are going to realize that they're not winning the Super Bowl this year. They probably already know that, right? And moving forward, looking ahead, if they do believe that Winston still has a chance to be that franchise guy, like we know he has the physical tools, if he can get it together between the years, then you know he should be a guy who has a lot of value moving forward. You don't want to risk that in a season like this, where you're already probably not going to make the Super Bowl, and when you have a competent enough backup in Ryan Fitzpatrick. I just don't think there's any reason to rush Winston back. And, yeah, I'm with you. If, if you have the means at quarterback to let a guy like that go, like, why wait around? This is the time of year when it's okay to start playing more for upside and, and stop worrying about holding guys, you know, for, you know, promise. Like, you, we have to win now to make it into the fantasy playoffs for the most part. And once we're in the fantasy playoffs, every week is a must win. You can't be carrying around too much dead weight in those situations. So I think Winston Winston is a guy who can go if, if you can make that work. Other injury news at the quarterback position, Jake Cutler suffered a concussion 
and Matt Moore came in in relief, scored a little bit over 15 fantasy points, 282 yards, and a touchdown passing. But we've been here before once this season. We, we saw Moore come in to replace Cutler previously, and he did not look good. This week's a little different because he's, he's going up against the Patriots, who you know statistically have been a very favorable matchup for quarterbacks. Is Moore worth a look for you in Week 12 uh, You know, as like a streaming candidate if he's named the starter? Yeah, I mean, I'd be all over that. Uh, Moore's been all right at times during his career, and I think Adam Gase is a, a decent enough coach. I know he's had a, a really tough year this year. The team's pretty pretty terrible, but um, he got some some decent success out of Cutler in Chicago. He's gotten some decent success out of Cutler this year at, at times. I mean, uh, he's been pretty awful at times as well. But that's just Cutler. Pretty, <laughs> yeah, I have a pretty low opinion of Cutler, so I was just gonna say so. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I, I basically look at Matt Moore like wherever you're valuing Jay Cutler, which is probably not very high. I look at him as like a slight notch above that. Um, there's some potential upside because he has good weapons. I mean, Kenny Stills is, a, in my opinion, one of the better wide receiver threes in the league. And then, you know, Devontae Parker and Jarvis Landry is a pretty good tandem. I mean, that's a pretty good three uh, three man core there. And then Julius Thomas is, you know, a capable tight end. I, I personally think he's a little bit overrated but he's a capable enough tight end uh he's got two decent bad i mean you know ajay is gone now but i don't think damian williams or Kaden drake are that bad i don't I, I don't think it's the worst situation in the world i think the dolphins as a team are pretty bad but in terms of this game i mean i think uh the patriots defense they've given up a lot uh, a lot fewer points over the last month plus than they did early in the season and, and people have quoted that as being drastic improvement but they were still giving up tons and tons of yardage per game uh up until i think this last week they they finally shut down the, the raiders i think it was but we know that the raiders aren't that good either Derek carr is a, a pretty overrated quarterback in his own right yeah i mean they, they uh defensively have still given up plenty of total yards in, in pretty much every game i mean they've done a better job in terms of keeping points off the board but i still think they're very uh, beatable Especially you, you consider that more would probably be a negative game script and have to deal with, you know, a comeback situation. I mean, it wouldn't be an ideal situation, but in two QB leagues where you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, I mean, there's upside there. He could get a couple touchdowns, uh, you know, late with, you know, a deep shot to Kenny Stills or Devontae Parker, some playmakers that he has on the outside. Yeah, the splits with Stills are really interesting. I've seen, I mean, I just got wrecked by Stills uh, on 14-team Mockers team in, in the Faked Goods League this past week. And so I'm very familiar with how well Kenny Stills does <laughs> when Matt Moore is throwing him the damn ball. And I've seen a lot of people tweeting about that. I think right before uh, we started recording, I was, I saw Evan Silva tweeting about it and rich rebar. Uh, th this is a, a, a player whose value seems to go way up when Moore is under center. And I think that's something to keep an eye on, but I, I don't know, call me foolish. I'm starting to buy into this idea that the Patriots defense is getting better. And I understand that yes, they're still giving up yardage, but I feel that's kind of just within the Belichick mold to some extent. Like he, he's always one of those coaches who tends to, or in my perception is that he tries to take away the big play. He doesn't want to give up you know, those deep shots to players like stills. And if Brady and company can create a bad game script for the dolphins and force them into, you know, known passing situations with Matt Moore under center, 
I think that the Patriots defense and Belichick, the coach, are good enough to exploit that and get some turnovers and generally, you know, make that Dolphins offense look worse than it is or look as bad as it actually is. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of go the other way. This is something that uh, this is a matchup that I would fade to some extent. I'm not totally buying into the Patriots as a pushover matchup for passers anymore. So I don't know. Two differing opinions here. Do you have anything else on this? Because I, I yeah. Well, so first of all, I, I was uh, a little bit mistaken there. I, I'm looking at the numbers a little better here now. And um, they have allowed under 350 total yards for four straight games. And in their first six games, they were over 400 total yards in every game. So they, they've definitely improved. And, and I mean, that's basically all I have to add. Like, yeah, yeah, they've definitely improved. Um, they've been worse against the run lately, but they've been a lot better against the pass. Uh, and for four games straight now, I mean, I, I do still think they're beatable. I mean, it, there's been some interesting circumstances there. The the Chargers game was a really weird one. I thought the Chargers did some, you know, took a really weird uh, approach and game plan in that game. And um, then they just played the Raiders in, in Mexico City. They had the Broncos before that and Brock Osweiler. They've had, you know, a couple different, you know, better matchups and things like that. But Matt Moore's not a world beater. I mean, I can totally see your side, too. But in terms of, like, if you're comparing him to, like, real bottom-of-the-barrel guys, which is kind of what I'm thinking – you know, in terms of trying to pick somebody up in like a 12 team, two QB league, it's probably, probably pretty thin. Uh, you know, I, I like it, like, let's say it's a super flex and you have to choose between going with one QB or starting Matt Moore as your super flex. I'm probably going to take Matt Moore as my super flex unless I have a really strong flex running back or wide receiver. Yep. Totally agree. And, and I think the key takeaway, and you made this point earlier is that Matt Moore really isn't that much different than Jay Cutler, and if anything, he might be a slight improvement. So we were already comfortable enough with a player like Jay Cutler because the quarterback position has that inherent upside for you know a two-pass TD day, you know any given week. So I, I think Moore is startable. I'm just not really excited about him that much more than I am the other cheap options that are out there. But let's keep going. Speaking of cheap quarterbacks, let's talk about Deshaun Kaiser and Brett Hundley. After some bad performances in Week 11, both of their respective coaches gave them, you know, the, the dreaded vote of confidence and stated that Kaiser and Hundley are going to remain starters for the rest of the season. I don't see any real reason to doubt these claims being made by the coaches, which is, I guess, good. It's, it's nice when the coaches theoretically tell us the truth. But what do you think about these guys' situations? Uh, do you have any insights into either Kaiser or Hundley going forward as maybe players that you would expect to improve or, or do you think what we've seen is what we're going to continue to get from those guys? Yeah, I think with Hunley, uh, I'm kind of on that. What we've seen is what we're going to get thing. I, I, I mean, he, de- I, any young quarterback has potential to improve and I don't want to pigeonhole him right away, but um, I, I hesitate to think that he's going to make any huge leaps right now. He's been there for a couple seasons, uh, had plenty of time to learn, and has now played, I think, four or five weeks in a row, and we just haven't seen big steps forward. And he has weapons, you know, he has a, a strong enough offense uh, in the sense that obviously Aaron Rodgers can make it flow. Now that's not really a fair comparison, but I, I just don't necessarily think we're going to see Hunley be much more than he is right now, at least this season. I, I mean, I kind of think we're just going to keep heading down this path, and maybe he'll he'll have a couple bigger games than he's had thus far, but. Not much more than what we've seen. Now with Kaiser, I think the the range of outcomes is a lot wider. I think there's a lot of potential for him to actually bump up. You have Corey Coleman back, and I, I think that's a pretty huge um, 
a pretty huge addition. I mean, you know, or a re-addition or however you want to phrase that. But um, the guy's a uh, was one of the top uh, breakout candidates this year on on like, for instance, Sean Siegel's uh, wide receiver breakout list for this year, or you know, a number of other places you'll look because he's. I think the number two, pretty much the consensus number two overall dynasty pick last year. Uh, you know, a first round pick has all these positive indications. A great athletic profile, great college profile. Got hurt last year, got hurt again this year, but still definitely has a really bright future in terms of what we should expect given you know what he did in college, the age adjusted production, and all the different things that he did. So I'm optimistic about his future, and I definitely could see that happening now. I mean, really, the only thing that we haven't seen with Coleman is is for him to to play long enough to actually produce at a good level. But there's a there's a definitely a decent possibility that he could be a huge addition to a wide receiver core that's been. Uh, led by what Ricardo Lewis, Casey Williams was playing for a bit. They brought in Bryce Treggs one week and, and started him right off the bat, or um, you know, just all sorts of random random guys playing out in, in Cleveland. Um, definitely have you know good tight ends. I I, I like both DeValve and Njoku, but uh, and you have Duke Johnson you're working with as well. But once you get Coleman in there, and then also talk about the potential, which is kind of a long shot, but for Josh Gordon to come back and and maybe make some noise. Yeah, I, I think there's upside there, but then he's also the one that I would think is more likely to get benched as well. I mean, I think they can give him the vote of confidence, but if he has another really bad game, we could easily see him get benched again. I mean, that's Cleveland's done that like 12 times this, this year. Yeah, to to me, I agree with you that Coleman does help, but the the, the bigger question here is whether or not Kaiser is going to hold that starting job. Like you said, that, that pledge from Hugh Jackson is more important to his value than any receiver could be. Uh, so we'll see if you know he holds true to that. My primary concern with Kaiser is that we we know he's still going to make mistakes, right? And I don't know if upping the talent level of his receiving core really is going to dispel him of those flaws that he has, you know, week to week, like the poor decisions he makes. Although it does seem like he's getting slightly better in that regard. And unlike a guy like Hunley, who's had plenty of time to learn the system and whatnot, Kaiser is still a rookie, and th- this is. This is the season where we would expect him to be at his worst. So as the season plays out, if he can hold that gig and, you know, if these receivers come on strong, I mean, we already saw Coleman get the volume in week 11, so that's a good sign. There is there is some upside there. The, the schedule for him is a little concerning. He's at Cincinnati, then at the Chargers. Home for Green Bay is a good matchup, but then he gets Baltimore and Chicago to close out the year, and both of those defenses have been pretty good as well. I, I'm I'm – not actively looking to start Kaiser, and he's another guy like uh, like we talked about with Winston earlier. If you have your quarterbacks pretty well set, you know, with with decent matchups for the rest of the year, I could see cutting a guy like Kaiser loose, if only because you know we're not sure if he's going to hold that gig, even if Hugh Jackson says he is. I want to kind of. I, I definitely sorry. I just want to cut in. I definitely agree with you, but I want to ask you: uh, Would you rather have Kaiser or Hunley? In terms of, or I guess I should phrase it as, who do you think has higher upside for the rest of this year? Yeah, that's a tough call. I mean, I, I tend to be pretty matchup focused, and it's not like Green Bay's matchups are that much better. Like, they're at Pittsburgh this week. That's a tough matchup. Then they get Tampa Bay and Cleveland. Those are fine. But in the last two weeks of the fantasy season, they're on the road to Carolina. Then they get Minnesota. So I, I'd probably call that a wash between the two of them. And. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, in terms of just raw talent and, you know, the ability to kind of elevate their game above what we've seen, I I, th- I think I'm with you. I think Kaiser 
if only because there's more unknown there, is the guy that I would probably regard with more upside. I just think that w- along with that upside, you know, as is classically the case, comes a lower floor. And that would probably lean me towards Brett Hundley as the guy. If I had to pick between the two, I would probably pick Hundley. That but, makes sense. Uh, again, that has more to do with how I would expect him to hold that role versus how we've talked about Kaiser being a little bit more of a bench candidate. Do you agree? I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for the, the, I think the main part where I disagree is that I, uh, I do think that Coleman has the potential to really elevate Kaiser. And uh, I don't know if that will happen for sure, but I, I think the potential is definitely there for him to make the types of plays, like even just on bubble screens and taking them to the house and things like that. I mean, make the types of plays that, that lifts Kaiser's uh, statistical floor and ceiling. Um, but I think pretty much everything else you said, you're right on, and, and I agree with. And that's that's just why I wanted to cut you off and ask that question as well, and and, and get you to pick uh, a side there because I was kind of curious where you leaned. Yeah, and I guess something we need to factor in is just the performance we've seen to this point. You know, we can look at how those guys have performed to date, and I mean Hundley has done it in fewer starts. He has a smaller sample, but he has been worse than Kaiser to this point in terms of like fantasy points per game. You know, the the amount of times he's finished in, you know, the top 10 of quarterbacks. Kaiser's done that twice, actually, whereas Hundley has yet to do it. Kaiser has busted a few more times, but I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he was on that short hook for so long where he would just get taken out in the middle of the games and not they wouldn't let him finish them. And, you know, maybe things would have spiraled out of control and he still would have busted in those games, but we don't know. And so you might be talking me into, into Kaiser as the pick overall just because... He has been better to this point. Yeah, so I have him in a in a super flex league where I have been rolling with Bortles and Tyrod, so I'm now I'm moving towards Kaiser now. So I think I'm trying to talk myself into him too. Hey, whatever you got to do to sleep at night, Ben, I'll I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> um, I, I want to pivot to some of these guys. We talked about Coleman, but I want to pivot to the receivers for Hunley a, a little bit here. And the the one thing that we've seen bear out over the past few weeks is that Devonte Adams is clearly his preferred target. And Jordy Nelson and Randall Cobb have kind of fallen by the wayside. I mean, generally, when you have a bad quarterback, they can't support that many good receivers in the first place. What do you think about Nelson and Cobb going forward? I mean, I'm to the point where I start to think that they're droppable. Um, we're, we're at that time of the year, as we talked about, where it's time to start cutting mediocre assets in search of upside, in search of, you know, solid matchup plays in future weeks. Are you okay with letting those two receivers go? Uh, not Nelson. Uh, I, I can see it with Cobb and I wouldn't worry too, too much about cutting Cobb. I don't think he's going to necessarily blow up. I, I still kind of have a, a soft spot for Cobb and, and think that, uh, he still has the potential to get going. I mean, this kind of runs, uh, contra- contradictory to what I was just saying with, uh, with Hunley, but I do, I do still think Cobb is a pretty productive player uh, and, and has just kind of gotten squeezed out for targets or, or can be a pretty productive player. He's still very young. He had some injury issues. He had some down seasons there, uh, especially the year when Jordan Nelson's ACL uh, gave out and, and you know he had to kind of be the number one option. And now he's kind of gotten surpassed by Adams. And uh, But I, I still think he has potential. But anyway, I, he's the guy that is easier to cut. The, for Nelson, Nelson right now has been pretty inefficient uh, in terms of his targets since Hundley took over. And Adams has been basically what you would expect. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can look at these you know, types of efficiency metrics. Over at Rotoviz, there's the expected points and then fantasy points over expectation. And 
in Hunley's, I think it's his four starts, uh, Devonta Adams is like 1.6 points over expectation. So he's basically hit right around expectation. He's been productive. He's also gotten a lot more targets than Nelson. Nelson on fewer targets and therefore a, a lower expectation has been something like negative 12 points uh, versus expectation. Now, I think an argument could definitely be made that with Hunley at quarterback, you should expect negative efficiency. Maybe you shouldn't expect league average efficiency. In that case, then Adams is maybe playing over his head a little bit. I just think that gap is too wide. I don't think Adams is so much better that in a four-game sample, well, I don't I don't even necessarily think he is better. Uh, so in a four-game sample, the fact that Adams has been slightly positive efficiency-wise, Nelson has been 12 points negative. Uh, I, I think that's going to close. Now, Nelson also needs to see some more targets. But again, this is still a pretty small sample. I definitely think we, we can be comfortable saying that the recent trends are, are pretty strong and that Adams is going to be um, the number one in target volume going forward, but it also wouldn't surprise me if that flipped. I mean, I, I still think Jordan Nelson is a very productive uh, player and, and a very good receiver. I would expect their target gap to at least narrow. I mean, I, that would be my baseline expectation that they're uh, closer in targets going forward uh, and that Cobb could still kind of fall off a little bit, but uh, and then also that Nelson's efficiency would get better, or at least that gap would narrow. I mean, maybe Adams ends up being less efficient and Hundley just can't handle it uh, and, and can't carry any receiver to league average efficiency, but um, that gap is too much for me, and, I, and my expectation is that it's going to narrow one way or another, and I'm willing to, to hold Nelson on the hope that Hundley is good enough that uh, that Nelson's efficiency improves, and maybe he gets a little bit of a target bump as well. Yeah, I'm starting to worry that Nelson might have might just be getting to that point in his career where he was relying heavily on Aaron Rodgers to set him up to succeed, whereas Hundley can't really do that on the same level. Uh, but but I agree that the disparity between him and Adams is probably too big in terms of our perception. But the the target volume speaks to me, man. That's that's what I'm looking for above all else. Uh, especially like I said, when, when the quarterback's not very good, I just want. The one guy who's real like I want Larry Fitzgerald. I don't want John Brown or JJ Nelson or whoever else is catching passes in Arizona. And this situation, so far from what we've seen, is is the Devonte Adams show. And I don't know. I could see. I, I I'd be willing to cut Jordy Nelson. I, I don't know if you'd be able to pick up anybody with any sort of better upside though. So I'd probably hold him in most cases. But I, I don't know. Maybe your team is desperate for a running back and Samaje P Ryan staring at you with a, a number one waiver priority. And you don't really want to cut anybody. Uh, I, Nelson's a guy I could see giving the axe to. I, I, don't, I'm, I don't like it though. It makes me feel queasy to think about it. I, I think yeah, th- there's something but, to be said about that. You know, historical production that he's given us. Definitely. Uh, but t- to your point about maybe he's hitting that point in his career, I, I, I feel the same way too. But I always try and catch that bias because, like, I think it's a little bit of bias because I think we do that with older players whenever we see what could easily be described as just a, a, a slow stretch or a bad month or, and those things happen throughout a career. Uh, then we start to say, well, this guy's lost it. Like he's, he's over the hill. He's done. And to your point about bringing up Larry Fitzgerald, I mean, I think he's a perfect uh, case study right there. I mean, he's two years older than, than Nelson actually. And uh, he's a guy who the last couple of years, everyone said fades in the second half of the season. Can't handle it anymore. He's so old. He can't get through 16 games and be productive. Well, we're heading into you know late November here, and he is still crushing. And uh, I don't think he's going to let up. I'm betting on him in 2017 based on recent target volume and all those things. Now, to your point, 
the recent target volume is still the heaviest data point we should we should consider and i do agree with you that adam should definitely be ahead of nelson but um i'm less inclined to uh to kind of buy into the fact that what we've seen over what's really only like a four or five game stretch uh indicates that nelson is done you know like i just think that's not a large enough stretch in, in my opinion yeah i mean the dangerous small sample size is very real now speaking of shifting volume I want to talk about the running back situation for the Denver Broncos. And Devonta Booker is starting to out-touch C.J. Anderson. Do you think this is going to remain a committee now that Mike McCoy is out as the offensive coordinator there in Denver? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, those types of like that type of speculation is always tough. I, I think generally, like things tend to stay pretty similar, but you do see situations where they change kind of drastically. I mean, like when Bill Lazor took over. Uh, for Cincinnati in week three, we immediately saw Joe Mixon snaps shoot up. We immediately saw his touch count shoot up and his share of running back touches shoot up. Um, and so those things can change definitely quickly. Now, uh, I've been writing about the the C.J. Anderson uh, split with, with the other backs for a, a number of weeks in, in the Stealing Signals article I do. And the big thing with him has been he's giving up all the uh, negative game script work. And Really, that happened after Booker came back. He gave up some of it to, to Jamal Charles early in the year, but they also were in more positive game scripts early in the year. Uh, they've been in a ton of negative game scripts lately. In fact, they've lost each of their last, whatever it is, six or seven games. So the the thing for me is, like, we got to see the Broncos play in a positive game script before we really know what the deal is with Anderson because uh, what I – Notice, like, right away, their first, like, big negative game script game after Booker came back was that Anderson, I think he didn't get another touch after, like, the middle of the third quarter or something. And what they did was, because they now had more than just Charles backing up um, Anderson, or at least that they felt comfortable going to, they went to a combination of Charles and Booker. And they did that for a few weeks. Now, Booker is is definitely uh, handling more of that RB2 work than Charles but it, a lot of that's negative game script. And if you look at actually, if you split it by uh, by half this this last week even, where uh, Booker out-touched Anderson, Anderson did out-touch him in the first half. But what was notable here was Booker did get a lot closer in the first half touches. I think Anderson out-touched him by two. Um, but they were down 10. They scored late to, to lose by three. And Booker played a lot late. And that's where he racked up some of those extra touches and uh, largely in targets and receptions, and that's how he ultimately out-touched Anderson. But I do still think Anderson, if there wasn't a coordinator change, would be the RB1 going forward and potentially in plus game scripts the dominant RB1. Like, he could handle two-thirds or more of the touches, which is not what we've seen lately, but I, I really do think it's it's heavily game script-aided. But then you have to factor in the coordinator change, and maybe they are looking to make changes. Their season is is now in the tank, so... Uh, there's definitely some potential. They want to get Booker some more work. He's a younger guy. They want to continue to see what they have in him. He's been he's been solid. So it's one of those things where you kind of alluded to this earlier on an on an earlier point where where there's more unknown. There's a wider range of outcomes, and um, that's a it's a great way of always looking at things. And and in my opinion, that makes Booker definitely worth uh, grabbing if he's out there or or holding if you have him, and just taking a, a little bit of a wait-and-see approach. I mean, you're not going to start him immediately, but let's just see what happens a little bit because it's a, a situation where um, they've had 
almost exclusively negative game scripts for, I don't know, six or seven straight games. Uh, and there's been some weird quirks like that that have probably influenced the touch counts a little bit. Um, and, and we just kind of need to, to see some different, you know, games, game flow scenarios and also see Booker get some more of the first half touches more than just this past week. Uh, to really start to and and then again the coordinator change right that's the other the big change I mean there's just so many things where it could go a lot of different ways so it, I, I think it's kind of tough right now yeah and speculating is is never gonna we're never gonna be completely right when we do that so you have to if you want to take that shot on Booker you have to do it now this week and he's probably based upon you know his increased usage and and the fact that perhaps you know maybe part of the reason Mike McCoy got canned was because. You know, the the front office in Denver wanted to see more of Booker and less of Anderson. We don't know, but if we're going to find we're, – we're going to find out sooner or later. And when we do find out, do you want to be the guy who spent that waiver claim on Devonta Booker or do you want to be the guy who, who passed on him in favor of somebody else? Now, I, I think that, you know, looking at how they've used those backs, you're right. The, the games haven't really played – they've played out pretty consistently lately, and that could definitely be influencing – where these running backs or how these running backs are being used. But with that said, it does seem to me like the Broncos want Booker to be the guy. And I, I don't know if that ever really fully translated through Mike McCoy. Uh, but I, I don't know. This is, this is an interesting time of the year because if we're looking at it from the bigger picture, when it comes to these committee running backs, buys are done and we can afford to either speculate more on certain guys or, or just completely cut loose from certain players. Like I, I think Mike Gillisley is a good example of this. He was another healthy scratch in Week 11 after the same thing happened to him in Week 10. Like, do you hold him in case Rex Burkhead gets hurt? Do you do you cut him because he's not playing now? Uh, or you look at the Eagles' backfield and you see that you know while it's been crowded, they've been relatively productive as a group. Uh, but we know that down the road that can't really continue most likely and so we have to try to figure out which of those running backs are traps and which of the guys we actually want to own do you have any kind of larger view advice for listeners on that sort of stuff ben like what to look for in a committee backfield for you know forecasting which guys are going to be used more or just be more valuable for fantasy i think you touched on it with the game script stuff regarding uh the broncos situation but is there anything else you want to add on to that yeah, I mean, in those situations, I'm almost always looking for the the passing work and then the red zone work. I mean, a lot of times in these, a lot they might not even be considered committee situations. You know, in these backfields where there's pretty clearly a lead early down back, which is more the traditional fantasy back that we used to always draft in the first and second round. You know, 10, 15 years ago, and it's easy to think like, okay, this guy's the starter, he's the main guy, uh, but in many of those situations, the passing back who plays enough on third downs and and still gets utilized in the red zone as teams and in the league shifts more towards more shotgun formations and more shotgun in the red zone specifically, that guy ends up being more valuable. And I mean, one example would be Chris Thompson. Um, R.I.P. You know, yeah, R.I.P. Theo Riddick was was that guy last year. He hasn't been that guy this year. Obviously, Abdullah got hurt last year, but uh, Riddick's been that guy at times where he's been so involved in the passing game and also got a little bit of red zone usage where he becomes more valuable than, you know, someone who's handling more of the between the 20s work. Uh, you know, there's different backs like that. So especially if you're playing in a PPR league, obviously. But uh, for me, those guys can 
I mean, especially when you get into these negative game flows, they can rack up catches. And the the uh, I think the general mindset with Pats catching backs is that they give you a solid floor. They'll get you three or four catches. They're not going to get you a ton of yards, and they don't have a ton of touchdown equity. And I just don't think that's really true. I mean, it's actually a buddy of mine, Mike Beers, is a, a big best ball guy, and he's shown that a couple years ago he showed that uh, I think it was a, a question between Gio Bernard and, and Jamal Charles or something, and, and he asked who do you think was more – productive for their for their best ball teams and it was geo because he had more spiked weeks where mm-hmm. uh and, and you see that with these pass catching backs because ultimately what happens is they catch seven or eight balls and then even if they don't score if they even if they let's say they catch seven balls and it's only for 50 yards they add 20 rushing i mean you can get to 14 15 points quick if they do score it's not that hard for a pass catching back to get to 20 points i mean we've seen it with like again chris thompson and it's funny when those guys do start doing that people start thinking about them as like pass catching backs plus like there's something special, but really they're just the pass catching backs that are hitting for the, the upside that I think most pass catching backs do have. So anyway, I mean, a, a good example is Dallas right now. Ezekiel Elliott went, got suspended and, and uh, Alfred Morris is the guy that a lot of people want more. He hasn't got a target in either of the two games. He's been extremely efficient running the ball. He's ran for over five yards per carry. Uh, I, I think it's 28 carries over the two games, uh, but he hasn't scored yet. He's probably going to be the guy who gets the red zone touches, so those do matter. But um, without any pass catching work and without any scoring, even though he's running very efficiently and getting 14 carries a game, he's hasn't even hit double-digit points because – you know, all you're counting is the rushing yardage. Now, Rod Smith hasn't been awesome, but in his first game, he got six targets and had four catches. The second game, he didn't get any targets. I think he'll probably continue to see some more uh, passing game involvement. That's a situation where I prefer Rod Smith because I think not only can he be potentially better while they're both there, uh, if he's able to, like, let's say Alfred Morris starts to struggle with rushing efficiency, Rod Smith can really easily slide into some more carries. That happens a lot with these pass-catching guys as well. And then he has this more well-rounded you know, production profile where he's catching some passes, he's getting some receiving yardage, he's getting some rushing yardage, and you know, potentially goal line work, probably not in that situation. Um, another example is you know, Minnesota. I've, I've been liking Jarek McKinnon the entire time. And Latavius Murray has scored now three touchdowns in the last two weeks and seems to be getting the, the, the bulk of the carries in the red zone. I think he has five touches, five uh, uh, rushes inside the 10 in the last two weeks. So he's pretty clearly their goal line back now. But McKinnon has scored a couple short touchdowns. He still has some potential to do that. And he's had some other big plays. And then he's also catching passes every week. So uh, he's the guy who has that 30-point upside. Even when Murray scored two touchdowns last week, I don't think he hit 30. But McKinnon, we did see do that earlier in the year. Because when you add those five or six catches, man, the points start to add up. That's another touchdown, you know. Six receptions is, a, you know, equivalent of a TD, and that's when stuff starts piling up. You get the receptions, the receiving yards, the rushing yards, maybe a TD. You get all these points from different areas. That's how you get the the high upside in, in uh, for for running backs, and especially in the modern NFL. I mean, that's why we've seen Todd Gurley break out again this year. It's all the receiving work that he's been getting. He wasn't getting last year. I mean, the rushing efficiency is back. The offense is better. It's giving him more a touchdown potential. But I really think the receiving uh, the receiving uh, production he's been putting up has just been so huge for him. And same with Melvin Gordon, who's had two monster weeks. I know he had back-to-back and has had uh, a pretty strong season. I mean, a lot of that, again, he's got the receiving work, and you can build out. I mean, last week I don't think he caught a pass, Gordon. 
and you can still do that. You can still rush for 80 yards and a touchdown and have a decent game. But when you get the receiving work, when you get the goal line work, that's when you get this profile that has monster upside. And so anyway, in a committee, I want the guy who's, who's getting the receiving work. A guy like Alfred Morris is never going to start catching five balls. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So I'm always targeting the guy who can catch passes, and especially if he can get some some red zone work as well. Yeah, and it makes sense that those guys have more upside. They're, they're the shiftier players, typically the players who are better in space, which means that every time they touch the ball in space, they potentially have the chance to take it to the house, and those are how you get those big right. spiked weeks that win you matchups. So, yeah, I love all that stuff. Um, next guy I want to talk to you about is Robert Woods, and he injured his shoulder in Week 11. I am more curious as to how you think this is going to impact Jared Goff's stock, because when I look at this situation – it feels sneakily kind of like a big-time problem, potentially. The Rams' offense seems to thrive on spreading the ball around to some extent, and they've relied on kind of their depth of weapons, right? They have a lot of different guys they can throw it to who are above average but not great receiving options necessarily. I mean, you can dispute that nickel and dime it here and there, but but in general, they don't have like one transcendent player outside of a guy like Todd Gurley in the receiving game. And if you take away their best wide receiver at this point or to this point in Woods, I feel like that puts a lot more stress on the mediocre players they have on their roster, like Tavon Austin, Farrah Cooper, Josh Reynolds, uh, the tight ends, Higby and Everett. I just don't know if I see that working out too well, especially now that we've seen kind of a, a more real representation of Jared Goff against a good defense in Minnesota. Like, I think he was skating by to some extent on easy matchups for a few weeks. We saw him come back to earth against a good defense. Now he's lost his key receiver. How do you see that impacting Goff's stock going forward? I pretty much agree with you, uh, point for point. There, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's hard to say Sammy Watkins is is kind of an average player, but he's been that this year. I mean, it's a very very fair point. Cooper Cup has been fine. He's been very solid. I mean, for a rookie receiver to come in and and play the slot and, and have the second most targets and be pretty productive and be a pretty reliable chain mover, that's great. But he's not going to all of a sudden be you know, extremely productive, uh, and he's not going to replace Robert Woods' outside production. So basically what you need for, for Goff to cont- continue doing what he's been doing is you need Watkins to really step up. And I think there's potential for that, but Woods, for all intents and purposes, it's just clear he's their wide receiver one. He has been all year. Uh, he leads the team with 70 targets. He's over 200 yards uh, clear of cup for – um, the most receiving yardage yardage on the team. He's tied with Watkins for the uh, the TD lead, uh, but he's the guy that has you know the the big plays. Uh, Watkins has had a number of big plays as well, but the big plays plus the consistency. He's been their target guy, their top target guy. He's leading the team in interceptions. He's leading the team in receiving yards. He's tied for the team lead in receiving TDs. I mean, we don't think of Robert Woods as a wide receiver one, but if you're kind of wondering. Uh, and, and to the question you asked, like, how the, is this going to impact Jared Goff's production? Well, let's look at his production to date because that's what we're comparing it to. And his production to date has included a, a target breakdown that has Robert Woods performing like a legitimate wide receiver one. Now, consider any other quarterback losing their legitimate wide receiver one. I mean, that's that's a big issue. That's that's uh, I mean, he, he has the advantage of having a Sammy Watkins type talent on his team that has the potential to step up and fill that void a little bit. And I think that's really uh, his best shot at, at maintaining some of this production without falling off too hard. But I'm totally with you, man. I mean, the production to date has been so heavily, I don't want to say dependent, but 
has flowed so heavily through Robert Woods, who has, uh, again, over 700 receiving yards. No one else on the team's over 500. I mean, he's the number one wide receiver. It's it's plain as day when you look at the statistics, whether you want to dispute the, the talent level or whatever, that's what has gotten Goff to where he's at right now is uh, a target distribution that features Robert Woods. So it's a big problem, definitely. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, Woods could come back relatively soon. We, we don't know that for sure, but I, I think that this is something we need to keep an eye on, and we need to keep keep in mind particularly that note I made about how Goff's kind of perceived high value after those three nice games. We don't want to let that filter too much into our you know, overall analysis of him as a player. And even though he just had one bad week, we, we can't just go back well and say, oh, well, before that he was fine. Because, again, the, the matchups kind of speak to his production. And so week to week, you're going to have to evaluate him as a mediocre quarterback who's missing his top wide receiver. And that's scary looking forward. Uh, let's get to our awards for week 11. And we'll start off with the boom of the week at quarterback. Ben, which quarterback outperformed your expectations the most in Week 11? I want to go with uh, uh, a guy that I don't know. If, I mean, you'll have to tell me if he's ever been the the boom guy in uh, on this podcast because that's it's not a guy that you would ever anticipate outperforming expectations. But it's Drew Brees. I mean, they have been so dependent on running the ball, and uh, he has been for the last month plus and, and in some ways for the entire season, the court, not a game manager, but the, the quarterback of a running team. I mean, they have been run focused and he has dumped the ball off a lot to his running backs, which he's done his whole career. I mean, I don't say that in a, in a negative way. I mean, I think he is uh, obviously extremely skilled at getting his running backs, the ball, um, in a way that allows them to run after the catch and, and have extremely high catch rates. If you go back and look at his running backs throughout his career, they all have just massively higher catch rates than they have at other stops in their careers. I mean, he's extremely skilled at that, and that and that's why all his running backs always have such good receiving production. But um, this week they were behind, and it's the first time they they found themselves behind in a few weeks, and he had to pull out the vintage Drew Brees chuck it all over the field, throw for 380 yards. And uh, I don't know, man, that was a, that was fun to watch. And uh, it was, a you know, an awesome comeback. And uh, he's a guy that, to be honest, I mean, there, there was definitely some other guys. Andy Dalton did really well against the Broncos, but uh, Breeze is a guy who I, I didn't anticipate a 380 yard vintage Drew Breeze game. Yeah, he wasn't on my list, but you're right. It was surprising to see them get back to that because it had been so long and they'd become such the, the Ingram and Kamara show for, for so many weeks. Yeah, that's that's a fun call. I like that. And you're right. He has not been the boom of the week, if only because generally our expectations for Drew Brees are pretty high. But this change, this season has changed that to some extent, so that's, that's cool. Um, I like that you mentioned Dalton. He was on my list of potential guys. Uh, the QB9, almost uh, 19 fantasy points uh, you know, against Denver, which... I think one of the sneaky secrets of this season is that you can throw on Denver. And I've talked about that before on the show, so I won't go too much into it. Um, my boom of the week is Case Keenum. Uh, going up against the Rams, he finished as the QB 13 with about 17 fantasy points. The Rams were number two in pass defense DVOA entering week 11. And I know the DVOA doesn't always translate directly to fantasy production, but the Rams defense was very good. And I thought they would kind of expose Keenum for the bad QB that he has been in the past. But I think what I discounted in that matchup was Minnesota's offensive line. 
They ranked second in Football Outsiders' adjusted sack rate metric going into the week, so second best team in the league at defending you know the pass rush, just barely ahead of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who have been awesome in that regard. And I've talked a lot in the past about the value of 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 offensive line, and we've seen it ruin guys. Uh, like this season, we saw it. Uh, you know, kind of be the nail in the coffin for Eli Manning and Andy Dalton. Like those guys just, they might still be okay quarterbacks and competent quarterbacks, but if they don't have time to throw, even though they have good receivers or in Eli's case had good receivers, that, that's been a problem for them. And we've seen offensive line prop up guys like Kirk Cousins and Derek Carr. And I think that Keenum might be the next in that line of players, the guys who, who are going to benefit from great pass protection. And maybe that's that can partially explain why he has outperformed not only our expectations from week 11, but for Case Keenum as a whole this season. Um, what do you think about Keenum's performance so far? Do you, do you trust him to keep this going? Do you think the offensive line is partially to, to, to blame or not to blame, but uh, but partially the reason? Yeah. I mean, I, I their lines definitely played way better this year. We've seen that in the running game. They had a really hard time last year running the ball. Dalvin Cook came in and was a, a revelation and you know, it, it seemed to be that, that Dalvin Cook was was the revelation, but now we've seen Jarek McKinnon be way better than he was last year. We've seen Latavius Murray be, as far as Latavius Murray is concerned, downright explosive. I mean, he, he's had some some long runs behind this line. They invested in the line this offseason. It's obviously worked out in the run game, and I think it's you know, yeah, definitely can can point to that as a an indication for why he has been so productive in the passing game. I also think uh, that's a case of wide receivers being able to boost the quarterback play a little bit as well because I think he has the the I, I think it's the top uh, one two punch in the league now Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen and I know people are kind of down on uh, Diggs who hasn't been as productive since that groin injury uh, I think it was a groin injury again this year or whatever injury he had recently but Thielen is is a monster and and Diggs I'm fully confident is going to get back to being a monster before the end of the season so He's got a phenomenal one-two uh, wide receiver duo as well. So, uh, I, can he keep it going? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think he can because he's got a, a strong O-line, like you said, two really good receivers. Um, I think it's a great situation for any quarterback. Yeah, I love that point about Diggs too. I think that he's been kind of kind of the opposite of what we talked about with Goff before. Diggs has been a guy who, over the past couple of weeks, as he's been trying to get more healthy off of that that injury. Uh, he's had a couple tough matchups uh, against Washington and the Rams. One thing to note with Keenum going forward is that four of his remaining five fantasy-relevant weeks are all on the road, and so I haven't done too much digging into his home road splits, but that's something that now that I've recognized this, I'm going to look into later, and I'll probably have a note on that in one of my articles this week just to check in on his home road splits. Um, one more honorable mention here real quick, and we don't have to dive into Blaine Gabbert a whole lot, but man, QB8, almost 20 points against Houston, and the reason he wasn't my boom of the week is because Houston had been such a good matchup. They'd allowed three straight top 10 quarterback weeks before this game, uh, so I mean, we shouldn't be too surprised if you know any random Joe Schmo was able to go in there and have a good game, but I, I think... I just want to revel in the joy of Gabbard as a QB1 while I can because he gets Jacksonville in Week 12. So we know that that's not going to keep up. <laughs> um, let's get to the bust of the week. Which quarterback underperformed your expectations most in Week 11, Ben? I mean, it's got to be Alex Smith. I mean, he, he's played really well this year. A lot of people seem to be really frustrated with the fact that uh, he couldn't continue to play like an MVP the entire season. There were some really high wins in New York as well. Uh, I ended up moving like a lot of DFS shares off of Alex Smith because of that. 
Um, I actually faded faded him entirely, and I had, earlier in the week had planned to to play him quite a bit. Still, I mean, it was a pretty poor showing. They lost to the Giants, and uh, I mean, even with the wind, it it was. He's known for, you know, kind of the, the short passing game. There's reasons that he should have been able to handle the wind a little bit better, and he just didn't. I mean, he's definitely, definitely the bust. Yep, I like you. You were you correctly did not choose Dak Prescott, who actually scored negative points. But Smith is clearly a bigger bust because, at least with Prescott, we can blame his failure on some other factors, right? Missing both his star running back and his left tackle. Philly's defense is pretty good. The Giants' defense is terrible. Uh, this is the first time they've allowed uh, a QB to fit, or they've held a QB out of the top 24. Uh, it's the first time a quarterback has scored under 13 fantasy points against them this season. In general, they allow the third most points per game to quarterbacks, an average weekly finish of QB 11. Like this was a great spot for Alex Smith. And you're right, his profile as a passer doesn't necessarily make me believe that the weather should have been that much of a factor. So coming out of the bye, I just don't think there's really any excuse for Smith's poor performance. I agree, he's got to be the bust. And there really weren't all that many other candidates besides him and Prescott. I mean, Jared Goff was... And Peterman. <laughs> well, uh, but again, what did you have expectations for Peterman I, in during I, that game? I had expectations that were higher than five interceptions in one half and then him getting benched. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. That always felt like it was in the range of outcomes. But like I said earlier, like I looked at that the matchup of, you know, the Chargers pass rush versus the Buffalo offensive line, and that just felt like a nightmare to me. Like I, there was no way I was even coming close to Nathan Peterman. But anyway, let's keep going. No, um, I hear you. I hear you. It, do, do you have anything else on Week Eleven worth noting? Uh, you know, I, I write those articles over at Stealing uh, at Rotoviz called Stealing Signals, and I I go over each team. So I mean. There, there's a lot. <laughs> if there was any specific situations, well, that, that's great. Cover. Tease that. Let's just tell the listeners to go check that out. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, over at Rotoviz, search up uh, Ben's name or Stealing Signals should be pretty easy to find. I, I wanted to talk about one more thing, and, and this is mostly because we're recording on a Tuesday. I usually record on Monday, so we don't get to talk about the Monday Night Football games on the pod. Um, I think it's worth noting how bad Seattle's defense looked against Atlanta. And yes, we could have predicted that based upon all the injuries that the Seahawks have suffered, but. Monday's game gave us the some amount of confirmation that what we believed would happen is happening. And I just I think this is worth bringing up because it changes the landscape of what we what are good fantasy matchups and what are bad because for the longest time Seattle defense known to be stout especially at home if if those matchups aren't bad anymore if those are good matchups for opposing offensive players that's something we need to take note of and we need to try to exploit it especially right now in the interim like if if you can jump on that in dfs when some people might still believe that seattle is a tough draw for opposing fantasy players i i feel like this is something you can explain do you have, do you have any thoughts on the seattle defense am, am i crazy here um yeah i mean i have a few thoughts on it i i, I think uh number one I, I mostly agree with you. The the one potential concern there is that Ryan made them look very pedestrian in Seattle last year as well. Mm, uh, okay, good point. And, and I, I think Dan Quinn has a pretty good idea of how to attack a defense that he used to build. And, and that's something that we've seen with Atlanta. They've done a pretty strong job against Seattle uh, at various points, including in the playoffs as well, I think. The other note is, though, I I mostly agree with you, and we're gonna we're gonna move on to uh, favorite or, or or most intriguing QB streamer of the week, and 
you know, we can just jump into that now if you want, because uh, that's where I'm going to go. Okay, well, hold that thought, because I do. you brought up Dan Quinn's knowledge of that team and, and how he knows how to attack that Seattle team, and I just want to kind of highlight one play from that game that was, I, I'm sure you saw it, but that one where Matt Ryan faked a handoff, then faked the throw to that running back on a rollout, stopped, turned back to the other side of the field, threw across his body to, I think it was was a wide-open Toilolo or Hooper? Yeah, for the TD, Toilolo, oh, yeah. Oh, my God, what yep, a cool that's play, play that was. That's the play I thought you were talking about, yeah. That play was amazing, Like, because you could tell that the way that play was designed, that the intention was always for Matt Ryan to make that pass, Like, even though he was faking the handoff and looking at the running back. like They knew that they were going to have Toilolo open on the backside of that play based upon the double fake, and... You're right. That that is a great point about Dan Quinn and and you know how he matches up against that team specifically. So, if you go back to last year's game in Seattle, you'll see a very similar throwback to the backside play. I think it was to Julio. It was like, why is Julio Jones so wide open? But he ended up scoring like a thirty or forty yard touchdown. I think he ran on a crosser, but they did a similar play where they threw back to. Uh, the left side of the field. And, I mean, yeah, they did the same like same type of stuff last year. I mean, I, I really do think that Quinn has an idea of how to how to attack that defense. Yeah, and, and that's I just love that you bring up that. You add that context because now we we won't be quite as likely to overreact in how we're going to you know approach the Seattle defense moving forward from like a streaming perspective. But, yeah, let's get to it. Let's get to Week 12. Streamer of the week. It sounds like you might be going to San Francisco. Who is uh, who's your favorite QB streamer? Yeah, I mean, it, if if Garoppolo gets the nod, and I, I haven't heard anything yet. I don't know if you have, but I, I don't think they've announced that yet. But I'm kind of anticipating they'll let him play because I don't know why else they would have made that trade unless they're going to actually get him out on the field. He's a free agent at the end of the year. I don't know why you would intentionally get yourself into the franchise take situation. I'm not a big fan of that trade, so we won't, we won't get into that whole thing. But if they do start him, which I anticipate that they might, he's he's got to be the guy for me. I think uh, Kyle Shanahan's offense can definitely be productive. I think that Garoppolo, you know, we've seen positive things from him when he has played. I think that team has underrated weapon i mean not great weapons but underrated weapons relative i mean especially with pierre garçon out people think that they're they're receiving course terrible but i think marquis goodwin's solid he's a really good deep threat mm-hmm. i think i don't know that trent taylor's going to be back i don't think probably he is we, we haven't heard much on that i was checking him out earlier today and i i hadn't seen any reports he did break his rib um but with the bye week i'm i'm not optimistic but i'm mildly curious if maybe he can give it a go which he's a uh Really high agility score, slot receiver, very much in the Wes Welker, Julian Edelman mold. If if Garoppolo has picked up anything from Brady over the years about the utility of a player like that, um, I think Trent Taylor could be uh, a good a good asset for him for the rest of the year. I mean, that's not something that I think a lot of Kyle Shanahan's offense has featured or that type of player in, with those types of combo routes, but um, I do think that could work out all right for him, assuming that Garoppolo is able to, to, to be somewhat productive, but... Um, that's the guy that I think is kind of a lower end guy that, uh, in his first start against the Seattle defense on the road, they've always looked a little bit more beatable on the road than they do at home. And, you know, San Fran's riding high. They're coming off a bye. They just, uh, they just got, a uh, their first win before the bye against the giants. And, you know, I don't think they're going to necessarily contend in this game. Seattle has to have this game. They have a really tough schedule coming up after it. 
I, I would expect that coming off uh, a pretty devastating loss at Seattle be focused, but um, I could see this game turning into a little bit of a higher scoring game than anticipated. So may, maybe not as crazy, but somewhat similar to when the Rams went to uh, San Francisco earlier this year. And we saw that crazy back and forth game uh, when Brian Hoyer was still playing quarterback and, and he could do some, some more things than a guy like CJ Beathard can do. And uh, I think Garoppolo can probably do some more things as well in terms of pushing the ball downfield, taking more shots. Um, so yeah, uh, I think Garoppolo is my guy. Yeah, I like it. I, I love attacking that defense too. Again, while while we may still have some faint traces of the Seattle defense is good ism out in the world, I do worry that Garoppolo may not start until next week. And the only reason I say that is because Bethard is coming off his first win ever. You know, like and the first win of this team season. So. If yeah. maybe they reward him for that and let him get one more start before Garoppolo takes over, I'm not sure, but we'll find out. I actually think that both of those guys, whichever one starts, is is a viable streamer. Um, I'm going to go with Ryan Fitzpatrick, and maybe this is a little too easy because he's in like a an established role with that offense in Tampa Bay, but. I really wanted him to prove that he could be a startable quarterback again, you know, after Mike Evans came back from suspension and he did that in week 11. Still, I do have some concerns. His home road splits are a little worrisome, but again, like it's Fitzpatrick, he's bounced around. I don't know how home road splits from the past apply to home road splits with Tampa Bay. Um, This game is on the road in Atlanta. Uh, I think what's a bigger concern for him is the chance for bad or predictable game script where you know Atlanta's offense stays hot uh, they put up a ton of points they put Fitzpatrick into situations where he's forced to throw and then maybe you know Fitzpatrick does Fitzpatrick things and throws a bunch of interceptions I could see that happening but all in all I think the matchup against Atlanta is a little too good to ignore um, nine out of the ten games against them have produced top 20 quarterbacks weeks with an average weekly finish against them of QB 12.6. So right on that fringe of, you know, QB one in a, in a 20 or in a 12 team league. So he, he's a guy I'm looking at. Uh, the other player I would be interested in is Jacoby Brissett against Tennessee. Uh, he only scored 13 fantasy points against the Titans in their first meeting this year, but Tennessee has allowed an average of almost 18 fantasy points per game to QBs. And Brissett is at home off of a buy in week 12. So I'm hoping for a little bit of regression for him in this particular matchup. Uh, his rushing production always helps him kind of establish a little bit of a floor, although he hasn't been running the ball as much over the past few weeks or the past few games. Um, I just think the Titans are a good matchup. I don't think they have a strong enough pass rush to really exploit the problems that Indy has up front, you know, in the O-line. So I think this is another good spot for Brissett. Um, Any thoughts on Brissett or Fitzpatrick, Ben? Honestly, not really. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, no, it's all right. I mean, I think think you made good points there on both of them. Uh, I think they could both both be fine. Like, there's so many mad quarterbacks this year, man. Like, it's just... The, se- the secret is it's not just this year. It's been that way for a while, I think. I but know. yeah. That is a good point, though. And this is a very interesting week from that perspective. There aren't a whole lot of bad-looking matchups. You can talk yourself into a lot of different quarterbacks this week, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't have any buys, right? All the quarterbacks are in play. So if we're looking for a clipboard holder of the week, a guy who we would normally start but we're going to avoid in Week 12... I feel like the options are pretty limited. Like, if I look at the schedule, the three guys that come to mind for me are Dak Prescott against the Chargers team that just eviscerated Nathan Peterman, Derek Carr against Denver because he's always struggled against Denver, and as I noted earlier in the show, I'm not a big fan of Derek Carr in the first place, and Jared Goff against New Orleans and the Saints' somewhat improved 
defense, but I, I'm not. I don't feel strongly about any of those three guys. Who's who's the clipboard holder of the week for you, Ben? Is it one of those three? Is it somebody else? It's. I mean, it's so funny because I was. Uh, this is the one where I was prepared to ask you for your opinion first and be like, "There's it's a tough. Week. There's not a lot." And it's so funny that you led into that because I felt the same way. I mean, I had Derek Carr on a, on a short list. Um, and, and both the other two you mentioned as well, but I, I didn't really have anyone that's like someone that I would sit, but there is, uh, Carson Wentz, you're playing no matter what, but I'll just say that I think his ceiling's probably a little bit lower this week when Philadelphia has been, um, in really plus game scripts this year, they have tended to take their foot off the gas. He could probably still throw for three plus touchdowns. Um, on their way to a big lead, but I don't see him throwing for 300 yards. I mean, there's been some games where he's thrown, I think, for sub 200 yards and like three touchdowns. And like that kind of a line wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me, but it also wouldn't surprise me if he threw for like, uh, you know, 200 and two touchdowns or 201 touchdowns. And you're, you're thinking, okay, he's playing the Bears. He's going to have a monster game, but uh, I do think his ceiling's a little lower. That's not, he's not a clipboard holder of the week, though. I mean, it's just somebody whose ceiling's a little bit lower this week, I think, just because I anticipate the Eagles are going to, are going to be taking the Bears behind the woodshed a little bit. And then the other one is uh, Alex Smith, who we just talked about um, Mm -hmm. as kind of the disappointment last week. He gets Buffalo, and the main reason there is Buffalo gives up rushing touchdowns like nobody's business. Kareem Hunt hasn't scored in like, uh, I think it's six or seven weeks. Um, But Buffalo has given up uh, nine rushing touchdowns in the last three weeks to running backs, and 28 teams in the NFL haven't given up nine rushing touchdowns this season to running backs. So they've done more. They've, they've given up more in the last three weeks. One of those games was against New Orleans, and they gave up just a ton. But I think they gave up four or five. But they also gave up multiple rushing touchdowns in each of their other two games in their last three. I mean, they, they've given up, I think, 16 on the season, which is far and away the most in the league. Uh, I expect Kareem Hunt to get himself in the end zone. But the thing with Alex Smith is it could always end up being on like a little screen pass or a shovel pass or something like that. So um, I don't know that he's like a clear cut fade or anything or, or somebody that I would bench. I, I still think he's going to have a good bounce back week. I just think, uh, especially, you know, back at home playing Buffalo who's, who's struggling right now. But uh, I do think that there's some potential for Kareem Hunt to have a multi-touchdown rushing game this week and, and potentially pull Alex Smith down a little bit. But Probably Derek Carr is, is, is maybe the best one. And, and Dak Prescott, I, I also definitely thought of, but I thought was maybe uh, a little too obvious. I mean, to your point, like they, they've been they've been struggling so much protecting him. And, and maybe it's just Tyron Smith, but maybe it's also Ezekiel Elliott, who's known as being a really good pass blocker. Um, you know, a lot of people want to say, well, Ezekiel Elliott's out. That's why they're losing. And I don't think it has anything to do with his rushing. but uh, Because, look, Alfred Morris has been averaging over yeah, five yards fine. per carry. But I do think that uh, his protection could potentially be be causing problems. Not having him there, especially with not in combination with not having your left tackle. So even if Smith's back, um, there's some potential that uh, they miss Ezekiel Elliott in the protection schemes, and uh, the Chargers are still able to, to get some pressure on Dak, who's been sacked 12 times in the last two weeks, which is more than the rest of the season combined. I think it's his first eight games combined, which was I think 10 sacks taken. So. Um, Definitely, yeah. I mean, he's he's another one where the pressure is is going to be the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, let's call it Carr. I, I I don't think there's any like he's definitely the most obvious choice. I do worry though because as we noted before, Denver's a little easier to pass on this year than in years past. But again, it's just a slate where there are a lot of fine matchups and a lot of 
a lot of the you know the best defenses are playing against bad quarterbacks that we don't want to start in the first place. So when when picking like a guy who would normally start and avoid like maybe that's the answer is that there really aren't that many guys like that this week and you should just be playing the guys who are good. Um, yeah. Which you know that, that's a novel idea, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean that that would be that that's that's where I would lean. Yeah. yeah. I mean I, I'm not gonna tell you say to sit Alex Smith or Carson Wentz or any of those guys. I mean I think those guys should be in. Yep. So uh, let's let's. I, I talked about this last week, and we're getting to the point in the season. You know, the season's winding down. We know which of our teams are live for the fantasy playoffs in terms of like redraft. And if you have had more hard luck cases than good luck cases this year, maybe you aren't really in the running in that many spots, but you want to stay active in fantasy. Like this is one of like the great things about DFS to me is that if your redraft teams are doing poorly, you can, you know, pivot towards DFS. You can even hedge a little bit here and there. Like if you're playing against a guy who has some stud in a great matchup and maybe you're worried you're going to lose that in your redraft league. You, okay. I'll throw that guy into a DFS lineup or something and see if he pays off. Like, I want to start talking about DFS on the show a little bit more as the season winds down, because I think it becomes more relevant as the season goes on. And just a a kind of quick look ahead. We don't have to make any bold claims here because it's still early in the week, but are there any quarterbacks on uh, the DFS slate that you're interested in more than others? It could be guys that we've talked about already, or uh, maybe someone else just based upon cost or a stack that you like. Yeah. uh, There's a, I mean, there's, there's, multiple slates this week obviously with the thanksgiving slate and uh that's one of my favorites of the year i mean i love doing that on DraftKings, and you can do the, the late swap you can mess around with your lineups throughout the day in between meals and, and whatever else you know family time it, it, it's it's a fun one because you get three different games all on the same day but all at different times so you can kind of um you can even build your lineups intentionally to to backload a little bit so you can do late swaps and, and those types of things um on the on the Thanksgiving slate, I think Kirk Cousins is the the obvious big one yes. that you want to want to be targeting. But I also like Philip Rivers as kind of an underrated guy. Uh, we just talked about obviously Dallas is struggling, and they've given up multiple passing touchdowns. I think in three straight, uh, if I remember correctly, and um, think Rivers could have a, a decent game there. The line has moved really heavily towards a charge. I think it opened at Dallas as a three point favorite, but the Chargers are now a one point favorite on the road. It could easily be Melvin Gordon as well, but I think Rivers is a, an interesting name. For the uh, the Sunday slate, the guy that I can't get enough of is uh, Russell Wilson, who, you know, we talked about the, the San Fran side of that game. There's potential that if San Fran's offense can score a little bit, it could force Russell Wilson to take more onto his back, but he's already just absolutely carrying Seattle. Uh, he did everything he could on Monday night. We were just talking about that game, but he does everything for that team right now in the last five games he's averaging 2.6 passing touchdowns a game he also has their only rushing touchdown over that span they deactivated thomas Rawls so that they could go to mike davis who then gets hurt and even after he got hurt eddie lacy still only played i think it was six snaps he rushed three times for two yards so even after they lost mike davis and all they had left was basically lacy and mckissick they continued to just rely on mckissick their passing back i mean some of that was probably game script dated but they, they just were just had no interest in, in going back to Lacey, it seemed like. And it seems to me like they've pretty much decided they're done with, with Rawls and Lacey and, and the 2.2 yards per carry they're getting from those guys each week, which makes a lot of sense. But if they make that decision, then you can pretty much lock in Russell Wilson for elevated pass volume, which we saw more of last year and we're seeing more of this year again. It's not something we've seen throughout his career, but when that guy drops back 40-plus times a game, I mean – 
he just racks up statistics. I mean, it's it's insane. He's super efficient throwing the ball. He's going to run as well. And he's facing San Francisco in a game where Seattle has now lost two of their last three. They've fallen to six and four. It's a must-win game. They go to Jacksonville, and I think they play the Rams in the next couple weeks. they they got to get this win against the Niners to then build some momentum for the, the tougher part of their schedule. So uh, I think Russell Wilson's going to have one of those 30-point days this week. Yeah, I love that. And and the running back situation there is one that's not quite as interesting for DFS, but for season-long leagues, I, I actually wrote this up last week in one of my articles. I think McKissick is the only guy worth owning, and it's going to continue to be that way as long as they're so pass-heavy. So I love that you bring up all of that. And I also agree that on that Thursday-only slate that I really like paying up for Kirk Cousins against the Giants. I think a lot of other players will probably talk themselves into cheaper options like Rivers, and Cousins clearly has the best matchup. Um, with that said, I'm, I'm mildly intrigued by the full contrarian move of playing Dak coming off of two bad games. Like, it seems I like the, per- it. the perception of him is so low, and that slate is so small. The fact that you're seeing this line movement, too, like kind of gives the Cowboys that Bill Simmons talks about this stuff all the time, that nobody believes in us vibe. And I don't know, like I, I buy into some of that stuff to some extent. Like I, I generally want to see production on the field, but we've seen that from Dak. We know he's a good player. Maybe it, it just takes a couple weeks for him to figure out how to deal with the loss of that tackle and, and Ezekiel Elliott. I don't know. The, the point is that he's probably going to be the lowest owned of all those guys, especially because he's pretty expensive on both DraftKings and FanDuel. So, I think there's an argument to be made for him as a potential play from a purely contrarian standpoint. I like um, it. Yeah, no, I mean, and Smith might be back as well, and then he might pick up a little bit of, you know, people might might get on him a little bit as, you know, a, a bounce-back play with his left tackle back. But assuming that doesn't happen big time, and obviously if Smith plays, that's that's a, a big boost. But I, I agree with you. Whether Smith plays or not, I, I don't think what we've seen in the last two weeks is certain to be what we'll see the rest of the year. But that's what always – you know, that's the recency bias, right? Like something changed. We saw results drastically um, change and get really a lot worse. And we've now seen it for two games. And people are just going to be certain that – especially if Tyron Smith doesn't play, they're going to be certain that it's going to happen again. And in reality, like it could just be an adjustment period, like you said. Like it, it could just take – a a couple games and and they could be ready to at least be better and get back to you know a little bit uh, <clears throat> a little bit more offensive production in terms of you know what they continue to do going forward. So I I I think that's an, an awesome play as well. Yeah, range of outcomes versus expectations is is what you're really trying to manage there. Now absolutely, you, t- you talked about recency bias. Now I may be the victim of it here, but for the the larger slate of games on DraftKings, I'm. Not sure why Cam Newton is the eighth most expensive quarterback against the Jets. That seems strange to me. I mean, the Jets have been a very good matchup for QBs. Am I just buying too much into the recent, you know, big performances of Cam Newton here? I know that he's always kind of been a, a dangerous DFS guy because he's he's so boomer bust. But am I crazy for liking him on this slate? No. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. I hadn't really looked at him a lot. It's still kind of early in the week, but I'm with you there. I mean, I guess... There's going to be a little bit of turnover in their game plan, but they've had a, a a bye week now to figure it out. You know, Curtis Samuel went down. He was going to be the expected kind of beneficiary of the Kelvin Benjamin role, the the snaps and the targets, and uh, his snaps jumped up real high. And so now they got to figure out someone else. You know, Kalen Clay or uh, wherever they go there. Russell Shepard will probably stay in his spot, which he did last. I mean, he was still playing the the third most snaps, which he had been doing. Uh, when Benjamin was in the lineup, and then Samuel leaped him and, and and got into the starting lineup basically, and you know that that was the expectation until Samuel then got hurt, and 
that, that's also what we saw back when Kelvin Benjamin got hurt, like in week three, early in the game, that Samuel's uh, snaps jumped way up. So he was he was going to be that guy for them, and then now he's he's done. And you have, uh, you know, one of these other guys that, like I just mentioned, Kalen Clay, I think might be that guy. And you also have uh, Greg Olson returning. And we don't know how he'll look with the the foot fracture. We've seen guys struggle coming back from that, like Des Bryant did. And, you know, there's some potential, I guess, for his weapons to not be as explosive this week or, you know, something to that effect. But uh, I think he's a, a good underrated call. I, I like it. Yeah, I mean the 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 rushing upside, like you talked about with Wilson, is is part of what makes Cam so appealing to me there because I'm just we've seen McCaffrey get a little bit more rushing work, but he's still primarily a passing game option. Jonathan Stewart's no great shakes. I, I just I don't know. It doesn't seem like Cam should be that low in the salary relative to some of the other plays. Uh, if you look at like Fanduel, he's I think he's the fifth most expensive quarterback. So I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm picking nits, but. That's that's another one that I liked, but I like the Russell Wilson call as well. That's probably a safer play for sure. Um, ben, we, we've run a little longer than I anticipated here, so I'm going to let you go. But why don't you let folks know where they can find your work, um, how they can get at you on social media and all that good stuff. Over at Rotoviz definitely is where I write the uh, the Stealing Signals article. I write about every team each week, so it's a pretty long article, but... For each team, I do like a little snap note section, a little key stat, uh, you know, some signal and some noise from recent trends that we've seen. So it's definitely something where if you're just looking for individual players, um, you can pop in and just see those little summary tidbits. And um, definitely an article that, uh, you know, I've had a lot of fun writing. It takes a lot of time and energy, but I uh, got a lot of good feedback on. So that's the main thing. I mean, it it's tough to write about every team every week. I end up writing close to 10,000 words because, you know, you think – couple hundred words per team because you write a you know a little bit about the running backs a little bit about the receivers this and that and i think about it like if i wrote 250 words per team that's a thousand words per division you got eight divisions that's eight thousand words right there alone for the 30 the 32 teams so i mean it, it ends up being a long thing and it it keeps my content plate full uh but i also do write uh a deconstructing the vegas lines article over at fantasy labs you can see uh over there it's a, a free article if you don't have a road of his sub you can catch me there you can catch me on Twitter at Yards Per Gretch as well. So um, those are the the main places you'll see me. Uh, and then, it, it, again, if you want to check out the Stealing Signals articles, the best place to find them is rotaviz.com slash tag slash stealing hyphen signals. Uh, it's just a landing page for all the, the prior articles, so you can always find the new ones there as well. Yep, and those are worth the price of a Rotoviz sub. I, I enjoy those every week, and I always find like one or two little nuggets in there. I think I've linked to them in a couple of my articles before for those who, who do have the, the RV sub, but definitely check that out if you have access, and if if you're, I don't know, considering uh, Rotoviz sub, I think that's a good uh, article to, to help justify it, because it's, like you said, it's a, it's a ton of awesome content. It's a lot of work, but it, it shows through that you, you're putting in you know, a lot of different research. Uh, and, and I mean, yeah, you're probably going to repeat yourself on some players sometimes, but I mean, as we've talked about at length on this podcast, stuff changes all the time uh, and you got to try to keep up with that stuff to dive into each game like that makes you a better fantasy player. And, um, yeah, and that shows through in your work, Ben. I, I really enjoy it. I mean, I really appreciate that. And I, I would, would say to your point about repeating yourself, I definitely do that sometimes in the article and it's something I struggle with, but it's, uh, Something where, like, you know, there's going to be new people who are, you know, checking out the article that haven't seen it before. So I kind of want to keep people abreast of, you know, where where I've been at with prior calls and things like that. So I, I try to not 
you know, repeat too many, too much stuff. But at the same time, I mean, if you're writing about the same teams every week, sometimes the trends are similar. So you'll sometimes see some, some similar stuff, but it's pretty easy to just skip over, go to the next team, things like that. So, um, I, no, but I appreciate your, uh, your kind words and that, that you enjoy that article. It's, uh, it's been a challenging one to write, but a, a really fun one. So, uh, and, and I agree. I mean, it, doing that kind of stuff gets you. I mean, it, it's crazy just to dive into every team like that. How much, how much that changes kind of the way you look at, like for instance, DFS. For me, I do that early in the week every week, and by the the weekend DFS, I have a really good idea of what I want to do and and who I think is going to bounce back and and this and that based on really how the data was accumulated in recent games. And, and that's really the goal, but it's kind of break it down, see, you know, whose numbers are fluky, whose numbers are, are reliable and, and what trends we should think are signal and, and what stuff's noise and definitely check it out if you haven't. Yeah. Get on that listeners. Uh, and you can find Ben on Twitter at yards per Gretch and that's G R T C H as Gretch. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm at Greg sauce on Twitter. Uh, you can find uh, the site's Twitter at two QBs and that's T W O Q B S. If you want to send us uh, any questions on there, we're happy to answer them. Uh, you can also send us longer form questions and inquiries by email, uh, 2QBs at gmail.com, spelled the same way, T-W-O-Q-B-S. Uh, with that said, uh, thanks again to Ben. Thank you all for listening. We will catch you next week on the 2QB Experience. Adios. <laughs>